Hey, Happy New Year's to everyone, and welcome to the 82nd episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to comics to novels to horror to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Jane Levy, one of the truly great sports biographers of our time. And it's a cool, weird thing, this podcast. Jane and I both both write sports biographies. We both have the same agent. We both know tons of the same people. We both blurred the same book jackets. And yet, this is really the first lengthy conversation we've ever had. And it's a thrill for me. Jane's new book, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created, is a New York Times bestseller that's sitting right up there on the excellence list with her other sports biographies, one of Sandy Koufax, the other of Mickey Mantle. And we chat a lot today about the shared experiences of digging deep into a subject, seeing what you find, knowing what to do with it. Jane is just an absolute gem. And she's right now on Two Writers, Sling and Yang. All right, Jane, first of all, I'm not just saying this. I'm thrilled you're doing this because you may not feel this way, but I feel like in a way we're members of the same club who don't really know each other, which is to say um, people who are tortured by books. And we have the same agent. We had, a, we had books this year come out right around the same time. You came out a few weeks after mine. And I just feel like, I love talking to people like you or Mark Kriegel or Howard Bryan or Ian O'Connor who write sports biographies and sort of know the torture behind it. Two short Jews in search of surus. That's what we are. To translate, do I need to translate that? Two short, maybe you're not short. Are you short? I'm six foot two. I'm short. Well, I'm five foot two, so we average out at short. Yeah. Anyway. That surus, for those who don't know, is trouble, troubles. <laughs> so, yes, I, I feel precisely the same way, particularly after eight years writing this book. I mean, I swear to God, I, I, there's no interview I've, I've thought less about as far as specific questions, because I really am fascinated why we do this. Like, I, I'm not kidding. When I was, every time I'm finishing up a book, I'm not sleeping, I'm miserable, my health anxiety kicks in. Uh, I overeat, I under-exercise, I just, and I always say to my wife, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? So why are you doing this? Well, my dad was a very well-known entertainment lawyer in New York who represented really serious authors like uh, Joan Didion, John Donne, John le Carre, uh, Don DeLillo, and then there was me. <laughs> and I remember complaining to him once about having writer's block. And he said to me what he allegedly said to every writer he represented, writers write. He would not brook any complaint about uh, being blocked or uh, starting a new project or finishing a project and having the letdown of having finished something you've worked on for that long. Writers write. And uh, I'm, I'm tempted to, you know, get a little sign and put it on my desk. I'll, I'll have one made for you too. Does that do it for you though? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, realistically it's how you make a living. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to be able to go into court and, you know, argue that Donald Trump has violated every law in the, in the books. I can't do that. I'm not really in shape to dig ditches and, you know, reform the infrastructure of America. Uh, this is what I know how to do. 
And at a certain point, um, you don't really need any more answer. And given that, uh, you know, you, Red Smith always said, as I'm sure you know, writing is easy. All you have to do is open a vein and let it out drop by drop. And, you know, he was, to say the least, facile with words. But his column was done after 800 of them, right. albeit he did write uh, for many, many, many decades, um, you know, every day. Uh, but uh, I think I, I, I think he, his phrase um, when I asked him that question way back in journalism school, when I was asking him about his process, his answer was you get gated like a horse in, a, in the starting gate. It's what you do. And, um, I, I, David, our mutual agent said to me just before he took off for, for this Christmas holiday after the new year, we're going to have to start to talk about a new proposal. And I said, like, I'll uh... be, I'll be, I'll be writing you from Bali. <laughs> and he, he said, Oh no, oh no, you're going to have to get going on something. You know how you are when you don't have anything to do. And that right. is a horrible truth. Um, so we'll see how far I get doing nothing this time. It didn't last very long last time. See, I struggle. I'm I'm sort of like you. Like I was promoting the USFL book, already starting the next book, because I live this panicked existence where I feel like I actually can't take a break. I can't I can't have three months off. I can't enjoy kick back and enjoy it. I just don't have that ability to do it. Do you? Um, no. <laughs> but I attribute yeah. that to being Jewish. Not yeah. to be a writer. <laughs> Wait, so I, it's funny. We, I, uh, I know Jonathan, I blurb your book and, uh, I've, I've known uh, John for a long time. Great writer, great guy. And when I found out you were doing a Babe Ruth book, I thought the same thing. I, I, I thought two things. I thought I would never do that book and that is not going to sell. And I, I, <laughs> and here's why I thought, that, but I, I say that respect. It's not, I just thought there have been so many great Babe Ruth books written. There's one not that long ago by Lee Montville, you know, great writer. It's all, you know, it's an old subject. He's been dead for a gazillion years. Nobody's alive who saw him play or very few people are alive who saw him play. I could not see writing this book. And then I look and the thing's selling great and it's everywhere. I told you this the other day, things is kind of has blown up. I don't get it. I don't even understand why you would want to write a Babe Ruth book, but I'm really, but it clearly it worked out and I was wrong and you were right. I didn't want to write a Babe Ruth book. It was the last thing I wanted to do, and I, I I agreed to do it kicking and screaming. What I wanted to do and had started thinking about as far back as the 80s, when our mutual friend, the sports columnist Dave Kindred, and I toyed with writing a novel together, and then Dave went off to a different city to write a column for the Atlanta Constitution after being at the National for the for a while. Um, that was Frank DeFord's attempt to have a national yeah. daily sports newspaper. So I had been thinking about it up until the, that first visit to the Babe Ruth Museum um, in the early 90s with my then seven-year-old son. And I said exactly the same thing to myself uh, that you and everyone else has asked. Why would you consider doing such a thing? And I, I remember saying to friends, this is the last thing I want to do. It's the last thing I will do. But circumstances changed. And what I, what, what interested me was he had become such a caricature 
um, you know, aided by all the cartoons of which there were so many um, that appeared not just in newspapers, uh, but in, you know, fancy magazines, that I wanted to inhabit the caricature. As much as had been written about him, I felt like you didn't really completely know him because after reading all the biographies that have come before this, all of which are good and have contributed significantly to a person, uh, you know, to the perception of him and to his, uh, and to the perception of him and the understanding of his place in sports history, none of them had anything about his childhood. And you know, as a reporter, when there's a big gap in a story, I mean, you know, we're all taught beginning, middle, and end. Well, there was no beginning. So first you think, okay, there is something there. If I can find out about that part of his life, maybe there's something new there. And it also intrigued me because usually when there's an untold story of that kind of significance, there's a reason for it. Um, and, in and, and in fact, there was. And what I didn't anticipate, and I suppose historians and archivists know this, but it was new to me, is that in the last decade, the, av the availability of new um, sources of old newspapers and family archives have changed what we think is known uh, virtually every day. I mean, I think history is being rewritten every day because every time there's a new batch of letters or you know, divorce documents or newspapers that you can find uh, citations for somebody with a flick of a mouse rather than reading, you know, five years of microfilm. Um, you know, we find out how little we really knew. And the, the key to this was a 2011 interview with Babe's daughter, Julia Ruth Stevens, who is still alive at age 102. And she said to me uh, over a drink, and I was impressed that she was still having a cocktail at 95, <laughs> um, that um, she said, well, you know, George Sr., Babe's father, George Herman Ruth Sr., and Katie, Katie uh, Schamberger uh, Ruth, uh, were separated. And I said, no, I did not know. And nor did Bob Creamer, and nor did any of the other, you know, biographers yeah. up until Lee Montville, because uh, we talked about it. You know, I, I asked his advice before I started writing. Um, and I quickly called one of his granddaughters who I'd gotten in touch with already. And she said, Oh, no, no, they weren't separated. They were divorced. And I went, aha, that's the secret. Now I couldn't have told, uh, from just that those two conversations, just how Dickensian the childhood really was and how formative it was in his becoming the, the model for modern celebrity. But um, right there and then, I knew all I had to do was type in, you know, George Herman Ruth Sr. v. Katie Ruth, and mm -hmm. boom, with a click of a mouse, up comes... Uh, a whole case file on the divorce of Babe Ruth's parents, uh, along with the depositions and testimony in the case and arrest records. And it, you know, it was really ugly. 
And it is no surprise that he never spoke about it, at least not publicly. And if he did speak about it, and I suspect Grantland Rice, who was probably his best pal among uh, authors and writers, it was the guy he played golf with the most anyway, um, I suspect he knew because he made some remarks in a couple of columns after Ruth died, basically saying nobody realizes, nobody knows how bad it was. Um, but, you know, there was press box omerta back then. Uh, they had nonstop, complete open access to him and pretty much anybody else they wanted, but sports writers didn't write what they knew. So right. you've got this completely flip-flopped um, industry where today you're supposed to write all the stuff, the inside stuff about feelings and childhood and trauma you know we we want personality journalism um and and yet today's reporters struggle to get access the kind of access with, that would allow them to know those parts of a person in in Ruth's day they had complete access to him they had dinner at his house for god's sake but they right. never wrote what they knew until 1923 when a paternity suit that was ultimately dropped after he protested vehemently that it was untrue, that was the first hint of real uh, controversy. And it, and it came and it went um, by the time Yankee Stadium opened in that, that April of 1923. Right. You know what's crazy? Here's an analogy you've never, or a comparison you've never heard before. I had, um, I had Kent Babb, who's a writer for the Washington Post, on the podcast last week. And he had written uh, three years ago a, uh, a biography of Alan Iverson. A really great book, actually. And Alan Iverson is basically Babe Ruth with media. You know, he was a, a drunk. He fooled around. He was late to practices. He drove his coach, Larry Brown, crazy. He was a hot and cold teammate. But unlike Babe Ruth, the media covering the Philadelphia 76ers was going to write about you, write about what you did. Well, I don't think the, you know, I, I, I don't think the idea of a large living um, guy who flouts rules is unprecedented in human history. What <laughs> made Babe Ruth original? Um, Mike Rizzo, the general manager of the Nationals, calls him the original original, and that's what makes him different. He was setting uh, a precedent for how athletes would be perceived, how they would be remunerated, which is to say, not just for the balls they hit out of ballparks, but for the tushies they brought into the stands mm -hmm. um, and and for the way they would be covered. Um, so that that's the big difference between Iverson and Babe Ruth is that he, he uh, you know, nobody had done it before. Right. You interviewed 250 people-ish for this book. I mean, it can't be like me where I'm trying to find every USFL player because Babe Ruth's contemporaries are dead. Like, what are you looking for in interviewees when you're going along? So I conceived of this from the beginning as a kind of mosaic, um, a, a word mosaic. And so lots of times I would write things down or I would seek people out not having the foggiest idea whether they would be able to say anything helpful or if I would write something down, I would say, I don't know where this is going to fit. I just have to trust that this is one of those shards or pieces that will have a home 
and hopefully if I gather enough of them, I'll be able to make a coherent whole out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, th- a three-dimensional picture of a guy in a, in a one-dimensional, you know, um, uh, work, uh, much like a mosaic is, you know, often three-dimensional, but of course it's just flat. So um, I was looking for anything that was beyond the cliches that he was quoted as saying, beyond the words that Christy Walsh's ghostwriters put in his mouth. Um, and I was looking to fill in that chasm of his childhood, the, the boy that his parents called Little George is completely missing from all of the other books. In fact, I spoke to Bob Creamer about it um, just not long before he died. And, you know, his book, uh, Babe, was uh, revolutionary when it was written yeah. in, in 1974, published, I guess, in 74. I mean, you know, he he put in all the stories that people had always edited out, uh, people who covered Ruth. I mean, it was not without its... Um, titillating anecdotes to say the least. But, um, but when I said to Bob, did you know that George and Kate were divorced? He said two things. He said, no, I didn't know, but it wouldn't surprise me given the instability there. But he said, I didn't do very much with the childhood. And that's true. <laughs> he, he didn't right. do much with the childhood. And, um, I think that sports biographies for a very long time are what Mickey Mantle used to call and said to me was just that Jack Armstrong shit. And it started to change, um, probably with Kramer's book, frankly. That's why I say it was revolutionary in its time. Um, but up till then, sports biographies, I think, were stories of careers, not of whole lives. I mean, right. you couldn't have written a biography of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and left out his childhood. You'd have been laughed out of the Library of Congress. But sports always fell in another um, realm where it wasn't really considered serious. So therefore, you didn't have to apply all the serious rules of biography. And I thought that the key, not this is hardly revolutionary, that the key to who he became had to lie in the childhood that no one had accounted for. And I th- and, and having found what I found, I'm pretty convinced it did. If you look on Amazon, there are eight gazillion Babe Ruth books, as I mentioned earlier. And I wonder when you are, when you're researching your book, do you read them all or sort of avoid them all? You know, I remember having a discussion with somebody, and I can't remember who, about the two ways to go into writing a story one is tabla rasa, which is to say, you know, a blank slate where you know nothing and you read nothing. So you won't be influenced by what other people have said or, or I suppose, uh, right. uh, tempted to use something they said. Um, and the other way is to read everything. In this case, I had to read everything and I did. I read every biography and as much of the hundreds of thousands of uh, magazine articles list in the sports writers index um, and, you know, and a lot of newspaper coverage before I signed the contract to do it. I had to be sure that there was something 
new to write because I knew that the skepticism that you articulated at the beginning of this conversation was going to be what everybody said to me. And, and as I said before, I shared it. So it, w- it was when I read them all, uh, meaning that all the biographies, the Smeltzer, Kramer, Wagenheim, uh, Tom Meany came before them. Um, who am I leaving out? And then Montville, Robert Smith's, you know, Babe Ruth and his time or whatever it was called. Um, I, I, you know, as I said, each of them contributed something really important and had access to sources that I knew I couldn't get at because they're all dead. Um, so I had to find something, if something else in another way to get at it. And what I didn't foresee was that I would find those voices, um, in the documents that, you know, that I was able to uncover simply because of the revolution and, you know, the digital revolution and information gathering. Was microfilm a thing for this book? Um, at the Hall of Fame, it was a thing. Um, yeah. I, 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 yes, I actually had to go through microfilm at the Hall of Fame. Um, and I spent a lot of time at the Library of Congress and at the, uh, New York Public Library, and God knows, you know, how many archives of all the different towns that he visited on the 27 Barnstorming Tour, which, as you know, is the sort of the narrative spine of the book. I wanted to create a, a feeling of what it was like to be Ruth at the apogee of fame, at the precise moment when fame was being redefined and augmented by technology. And I also wanted you to be able to feel what it was like to be with Babe Ruth. So when he goes to these little towns, um, you know, I, that I don't mean that to be rude, but he'll say that the littlest of them was Marysville, uh, California, an old gold rush town. Um, and, you know, Omaha and Sioux City and also all, all sort of places. The newspaper guys who covered those because they didn't routinely cover him wrote stuff that nobody in New York would ever have dreamt of. They quoted him at length and whatever he said had enormous import. So they wrote it all down and you could get a sense of his, the way he spoke. You could get a sense of his relationship with Gehrig, who was on the tour with him and, and also very much of Christy Walsh, who was again, part of the untold story of Ruth was his relationship with this guy, Christy Walsh, who was a Los Angeles kid and a failed newspaper reporter, failed cartoonist, failed ad man, failed PR guy, who latched onto the idea that if he could get Babe Ruth's signature on a contract to uh, market ghost-written stories under his byline, um, that he might just have something there. Now, as you know, ghostwriting, as controversial as it always has been, um, and full of a conflict of interest that most people didn't care about back then, which is, which, but unthinkable today, um, was very lucrative for a short period of time, basically from, yeah, 1920 until just about when Ruth retired in 1935, because you didn't have radio. You didn't, you couldn't hear these guys' voices any other way. So here comes Christy Walsh saying, I'm going to give you a way to hear and feel connected to Babe Ruth and Newt Rockney and Lou Gehrig and Dizzy Dean et al. And it had a, a lifespan that, that, that you had to know 
was going to come to an end as soon as radio um, came into being. But for that period of time, it was incredibly lucrative. And it was also, as I say, uh, journalistically, a complete conflict of interest because the guys that he that Walsh recruited to write these things were were beat writers who covered them on a daily basis. So here you had Ford Frick, the form the future commissioner of baseball, you know, writing under Babe Ruth's byline, you know, and most of it didn't say very much, but you know, uh, it was it was completely dishonest. Nobody cared. So wait, so you would actually you you retrace the path of these barnstorming tours you would go on. Would you reach out to the newspapers in that town, find out what their archive situation is, or would you call the libraries in the towns? Like, how would you actually do that? Um, it varied. There, you know, I, I fell in love with librarians um, as, mm-hmm. as a result of this pro- this project and um, historical societies, particularly the local ones. They're just fabulous. So, for example, I'm going to say this wrong. It is. Is it Lima or Lima, Ohio? After eight years, I should know. That was a stop that they made between Asbury Park and Kansas City. And, you know, Ruth had friends everywhere. And the guy who, um, who owned the, the ballpark in town offered him $5,000 to get off the Manhattan Limited and play a baseball game, um, before he got back on the Manhattan Limited. So I called the, um, this lovely woman at the historical society who sent me a bulletin in which there had been several stories about that precise day. But she also gave me the names of people whose uncles or fathers had played in the game. And so I could get in touch with, you know, people who told me the family stories about the day Babe Ruth came to town. And, um, you know, there, there are lots of people who have reason to augment their role in something and you have other people who just flat out make stuff up um that wasn't going to be true of somebody's you know the somebody whose aunt you know helped to give babe ruth his trophy at the end of the, the game in lima so um you know a lot of it was digging out family stories and wherever i went i said you know anybody who saw babe ruth play and people Writer friends would say, Oh, I ran into a guy who saw Babe Ruth play and he went in his, the, went in the locker room to visit him. And, and I would do, you know, any, I would follow any lead again, not knowing whether ultimately, uh, whatever came out of it w- would fit into the larger framework. Did you need eight years? Could you have done this in three? No, I think partly that's because I had to learn to be something I wasn't. Uh, you know, you and I are trained to go find people and get them to say things that they shouldn't necessarily say um, in order to tell a story about whatever the subject is. And, you know, that's what I love doing is, you know, finding folks that are telling untold stories. But um, in this case, I was not trained to, in how to do this kind of archival historical research. And since I wanted very much for this to not just be a baseball story, but a story about how he affected American culture and popular culture and the, and the creation of the kind of fame, you know, Andy Warhol would ultimately describe as the 15 minutes everybody would have. Um, 
uh, I had to be on really, really firm ground um, historically because I was afraid of, you know, serious historians reviewing the book and say, what is, what the hell does she know? So I read an enormous amount and, um, and it was a complicated structure. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't sure it was going to work to be perfectly honest. I actually think it's funny. I have people, friends all the time, or I'll be like, what are you reading? And they'll be reading some tremendous novel or the new so-and-so or the Woodward book or whatever, you know, or the big fella. And I'm reading whatever I'm researching. So I'm reading, you know, the biography of Doug Flutie to research the USFL. And I end up having real jealousy, reading jealousy, because I feel like I never really have time to read books that I would otherwise want to read because I'm always reading books related to what I'm researching. I, I went to a party once. It's, it's a long time ago. It was a book party for someone. And um, I went, to, I bought a book and I confessed to her as she was signing it for me. I said, I, I have to tell you, I haven't read it yet because I'm writing, I guess it was Koufax at the time. Um, it is a long time ago. And she looked at me very sweetly and, you know, benevolently and said, oh, don't be silly. Don't you know, writers can't read while they're writing and they hate anybody else who's done. <laughs> it was such <laughs> awesome. A, it was such a it was such a generous thing. Yeah, I haven't read anything in eight years unless it had something to do with Babe Ruth. You know what I think is cool is um, or what I love hearing when you say this, like I uh, I recently got an email from someone and it was like, hey, man. Love the USFL book, but on page whatever, 228, you have that Gary Shirk was in his first year as a football player, but he actually played two years with the Giants in the 80s. I love that stuff. <laughs> uh, Jane, love the, love the Babe Ruth book, but on page 428, you had that the wind was blowing left to right. It was actually blowing right to left. People right, do not understand. I, to them, it's just a flip comment. To you, it's like, I need to slip my wrist now because I, I, I this is the worst. Every one of those, every one of those things that people catch, you know, kill. They just kill it, it. I find it so deeply embarrassing. My God, I spelled, I misspelled in addition to a couple of friends names in the acknowledgement, I misspelled <laughs> Buck O'Neill's name. I added an L and yeah. you know, every writer knows that this stuff happens. You know, your, your eyes and your brain cease to be able to see what's in the on the page at a certain point, you see what you think is on the page, um, you know, and that's why other people are supposed to read it. But guess what? They've read it, you know, a zillion times, too. Um, right. And, you know, what what people don't know is that uh, they're or they're stunned to find out is, no, publishers do not have fact checkers. They do nope. not. No. Nope. You know, do you hire? It's so we you hire no. your own. No. Wow. Uh, if I ever do something like this again, I will. Let me yeah. tell you, I, um, I, one review, which was probably the most equivocal that I got, unfortunately, it was from the New York Times. A guy nailed me on a couple of mistakes I made. Now, I think that's fair game. If you make them, own them. That's okay. He then went on to say that it called the rest of my reporting into question, which I did not appreciate. And don't think it's fair, but I racked my brains to think, how did I make this mistake? I went back and I looked and I went, yeah, it's, it's wrong. I got it wrong. I said that there, I, I had it, the wrong decade for when courts watches were, um, you know, 
when they were when they were invented. And of course, he was right. And as I say, it was fair game. You know, that's that's part of putting something out in the public is you're going to be judged, and and that's part of the, that's part of what you accept. But I kept thinking, how did I get this wrong? I know I didn't make it up. So somewhere I read a source that was wrong, and it just didn't stick with me. You know, I didn't. It didn't hit me to say, "Wait a minute, that doesn't make sense." So I went back to the sources and uh, reread everything. And in fact, what he what he endorsed and was paid for was not a new quartz watch, but a new. They called it a shockproof watch um, or a jarproof watch. Uh, and then I had to make sure because the only the only sources for exactly how the company uh, titled them were newspaper ads, which of course weren't necessarily correct. So sometimes jar proof was hyphenated and sometimes jar proof wasn't. And it took forever to get back to a file that had the official language of the Bin Russ uh, watch company so that in making the correction, which is in you know, the new printings of the, of the book, um, I wouldn't misspell jar proof because God knows, um, you know, that would be a disaster to correct a mistake with another one. That's very funny. I feel like I can never trust anything you write again because you got, you got the watch. Thank you. It's over for you. you. You're you're done in this business. It's over. And there were other ones too. You know, I've, I think I've made like 20 factual corrections. Um, and, now, what pleases me enormously, um, you know, and they're little things, but some of them are just ridiculous. I'm in New York at a friend's house. I misspelled his name. <laughs> I'm just God. horrified. But, yeah. um, you know, uh, but what, what has pleased me enormously is that no one at all has argued with the substance. Right. I actually remember, um, I remember my first book ever was about the 1986 New York Mets and the, it was a Harper Collins uh, book and, and the cover was designed to look like the newspaper from the day they won the world series. And the, whoever designed it had the wrong date on the top of the newspaper. Like it was just, you know, whatever, October, whatever, instead of October, whatever the, Hey asshole, learn, learn your stuff. Hey asshole, how can I trust you? If blah, blah, like, I'm just trying my best here. You know, I'm just trying my best. I didn't even write that, but that stuff kills you. That stuff kills you. Well, I'll tell you you one that's really hilarious. Um, You know, did you read the ESPN diary of Miles Thomas? I did not. They did this thing two years ago um, where they wrote a faux diary of the last man down on the Yankee roster. So he would have been the 25th guy. They had mm. 25 then, didn't they? I, I hope so. If not, somebody will undoubtedly let us know. Yeah. Um, and, and it was, it, it, you know, they were, they were clear that this was fiction and a new form of sports writing that they were going to tell the story of the 1927 Yankees through the eyes of the most marginal guy on the bench. And they did a lot of research about, um, you know, jazz and what New York City was like, all of which was terrific stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they also had, 
uh, substantiating documents, including correspondence and newspaper articles and little biographies of uh, characters who wafted in and out of of the of of Miles' diary. Well, one of them was Ford Frick, who was covering the New York Yankees, and I'm not even going to say it because I don't remember which newspaper it was. So I'll just there were there were, I think there were twelve dailies then. So uh, whichever one it was may have been the World, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it was the World um, because what happened was. If I, when I went through, uh, all the, uh, attached documents to Miles' diary, it included letters and accounts of, by Ford Frick of ghostwriting for, for Babe Ruth, which I thought was, oh man, this is golden. And then right. it had, and then it had letters between Ford Frick and Christy Walsh in which Ford Frick is admitting his incredible anxiety and mixed feelings about this dual role that he has, you know, and how other reporters are mad when they see him, you know, standing in a corner alone with Babe Ruth, um, getting stuff, you know, for the column. It never occurred to me that that stuff was also fiction. Oh, man. So I wrote, I wrote this whole chapter quoting you know, and attributing letters between Ford Frick and Christy Walsh about the ghostwriting, which is a very important part of my book. And at the last minute, I was looking, because they also have the newspaper articles, just like the one you're talking about on the cover of your 86 book. They have an, an, uh, an article, um, and I look at the, 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 the masthead, and it's wrong. And I go, wait a minute. They attributed they were supposed to be in the World Journal, and I knew that it didn't that the, those two papers didn't combine and merge until the 30s. So then I thought, oh, oh my wow. God, they've got the masthead wrong, and that means they've made up the masthead. And then I suddenly go, this is literally like a month before the book was due. Oh my what God. else have they made up? So I called. My old friend, uh, who I'm sure you know, Steve Wolf, who was, uh-huh. who was a great writer and editor at, uh, uh, Sports right. Illustrated for years and is now at, um, ESPN.com. And I said, <laughs> with my heart sinking, I said, are those letters also made up? <laughs> and he goes, well, yeah. <laughs> uh. and I go, Oh no. Where's the gun? Oh. <laughs> where's the gun? So at the last minute I had to rewrite uh, one major chapter and other sections of the parts of the book that pertain to the, to the issue of ghostwriting and whether or not people had any sense of how conflicted they were by taking Christy Walsh's money to write about Babe Ruth, while they were also supposedly objective reporters writing for their own newspaper, and right. um, and in a certain way, it's funny because the fiction that they created, showing that Ford Frick had, uh, alleging that Ford Frick had harbored uh, conflicted feelings about this dual role, um, is completely counterfactual, because right. nobody had any conflict about that role 
right. there were there were some sports writers who didn't participate uh, in it who protested vehemently and ultimately succeeded in in contributing to the demise of the practice. Um, it was called the player author evil back in the teens, as a matter of fact. Um, but it's much more accurate. And Steve felt so bad about it that he went and got out Frick's biography for me uh, and the sections that he had used to create the false letters. And of course, he was surprised in retrospect um, to find that Frick said nothing about it. Um, right. and betrayed no sense of guilt at having had this dual role, which makes much more sense in terms of who he was and how the practice was viewed back in those days. That truly could have been a disastrous outcome for you. Talk about, yeah, the New York Times guy would have had a field day. Yeah, and rightly, rightly so. Yeah, that yeah, would have been hard. Yeah, yeah. Well, like he was, yeah. he was right to nail me on the court's watch. I can't even remember right. what the other one was. That he nailed right. me on, but he was right about both of them. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my son Emmett as we find ourselves celebrating another glorious New Year's. I really hate New Year's. I've never understood that. It's a renewed opportunity to get everything right that you screwed up the previous 365 days. Honestly, Dad, I see it as a contrived man-made suppression device used to keep us running around like hamsters on a wheel, sipping from our grande latte macchiatos and staring at glowing handheld devices as the man wipes out all of our hopes and dreams in an effort to continue to brainwash our souls while simultaneously downgrading the economic opportunities of a people. What the fuck was that all about? I don't know, Dad. I'm really sad about 2019, meaning the USFL has been gone for 35 years. Well, what if I tell you this podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, and I can hook you up, Emmett, with some throwback USFL jerseys, some XFL hats, Portland State t-shirts. All you got to do is go to 503-sports.com and check out the goods. Anything you want. This is the best New Year's ever. Let me see this. The, um, because I always, I always have a moment when I ask myself this, which is, um, all right, the book comes out, people review it, people talk about it, you start getting Amazon reviews, people tweet about it, you do your interviews, you do more interviews, uh, you do a couple of signings, you know, you're the talk of the town, you're on NPR, hopefully you get on whatever, some show. And then, you know, like my book came out September 11th, so now here we are, more than more than three months removed, and it definitely slows and kind of fades away and you move on. Th is the payoff worth the effort? Oh boy, that's a, that's a good question. Um, um, I remember telling somebody or maybe multiple somebodies that I was going to enjoy this ride as long as it lasted I, because this is the gravy. This is, it, you don't work for that kind of recognition. You certainly can't anticipate it because it's rare. Um, you know, but, it's so I'm very, very, very grateful um, for the amount of stuff I've gotten to do and for the number of friends in the business who have um, let me twist their arms into helping me. Um, but uh, I, I, you know, I called in a lot of chits and a lot of places where I didn't have chits to call in and I still called them in. I'm going to owe a lot of blurbs when this is done. <laughs> um I don't think you can look at it as, you know, from, from that point of view. Um, 
I just don't think you can say, oh, was, was it worth it? I mean, this is what we do. Writers write, as my dad always said. I want to ask you one more thing. I read a uh, given essay on your website that you wrote for the Chicago Tribune in 1992 called The Rookie, Coming of Age of a Sports Writer of the Other Gender. You actually yeah. studied for this. Okay, good. Study as I went to your website and read some of your um, – first of all, it was a really – I mean, I shouldn't be surprised. It's a great sort of essay that's worth reading, any journalist. And um, Well, first of all, you talked about trying to interview uh, Earl Campbell on one of your first assignments and waiting for him <laughs> for five hours, which is awesome. But then you had a line in there. You wrote, in a way, reporting is a seduction. You use empathy to undress someone. Do you still feel that way, first of all? And what do you mean exactly? I do feel like that. I, I sort of said something um, that got at that, that our job is to find people with stories to tell and get them to tell things and say things that aren't necessarily in their own best interest. Um, right. And so, you know, some people really want to tell a story and, you know, that doesn't always happen. You know, I would say that's maybe a quarter of the time. Um, but mostly, um, you know, at least in when I was back being a newspaper reporter, um, I always felt like I had to um, schmooze <laughs> the stories yeah, out of them. Um, and, uh, and, and I always would feel sort of guilty because people would tell me things and I would go, Oh, now I'm responsible for this. What do I do? I, 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 I think that, um, I, I actually had a discussion with a, the ma then managing editor of the Washington Post about this. I'd, I'd gotten some information about, um, the Soviet pair skaters, the, protopopoffs um and i mean this is the kind of tangled web we all often find ourselves in and the promoter of an event of a professional event that they were skating in long after they had defected to the united states told me off the record meaning i should go track down the story but not quote him on it that the protopopoffs relatives left behind in then Soviet Union, um, you know, uh, were in trouble because of them leaving and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I can't remember all the details. But I thought, oh, my God, I have these people's fate in my hands. This is just a story about a goddamn professional skating exhibition, you know? Right. <laughs> you know, how can you take the chance of uh writing this and perhaps having a you know really bad impact on the lives of some people living you know 10,000 miles away or whatever it was and i remember the managing editor say it's not your job to play god meaning you know yeah. you you write what you know um and i was so upset about it i um, I can't remember whether he or I went to the then Post's um, Moscow correspondent and asked him about it. And the guy backed me up. He said, you know, this would definitely put these people in danger. It's not worth it. Don't do it. And so I, I remember how relieved I, I, I didn't write it. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's, it was just a damn professional skating exhibition, you know, and the promoter had told it to me for the most cynical of reasons, you know, selling tickets. He was prepared to, you know, uh, sell out these stars, you know, I mean, they, they said when I went to them and told them what I knew, they pleaded with me, please don't do this. You know, it's not a story they wanted told. And that kind of conflict, you know, tormented me. I just was always terrified, um, about the amount of power that you have to directly influence and sometimes change someone's life by what you write. And if you get it wrong, man, you know, big deal if I get a court's watch wrong. What if you get something right. wrong that's, you know, about, that changes some the course of someone's life? Um, and I found that almost paralyzing. Well, let me ask you this. I, um, and I've talked about this before in this podcast. Like I, just as an example, I wrote Walter Payton's biography, whatever, seven years ago. And, and, um, you know, out of wedlock kid, just as an example, you find out he has an out of wedlock child and he gave money, but he had nothing to do with the kid, even though the kid lived, whatever stones throw away. I feel like I have to write about it. If you're doing a definitive biography on someone, how do you not write about that kind of thing? But it's devastating to his widow. It's devastating to his two kids. It's devastating in a way to his legacy. I still don't fully know how to justify some of the things I write, but I don't know how to not do it. Yeah, I think sometimes the, the hardest thing for a writer is saying, no, I'm not going to tell that story. There was one about Mickey Mantle that was so awful, something that he repeatedly said to people and therefore numbers of people repeated it to me that was so so offensive i mean we're not even offensive doesn't even begin to describe and i'm not going to tell you it because uh, then i'm uh-huh. <laughs> undoing my decision but i thought about it a lot um because the fact that he would tell a story about himself that was so i mean it was almost criminal it was you know of a sexual nature and um it's so indicting of himself was instructive to me because why would he, why would somebody go around telling repeatedly a story that makes, you know, that made him look animalistic? And I, right. you know, and from, from a biographical point of view, I was convinced that it was an illustration of how much Mantle wanted somebody to tell him to grow up. You know, to say, you can't go around talking like that. That's what, what kind of adult goes around t- talking like that? That's crazy. Um, right. and, um, so I thought about it seriously, but decided if I printed it, it would be the only thing anybody ever remembered about the book. And I didn't, didn't want to do that. I didn't want the entire thing to be overshadowed by that one very salacious anecdote. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and it would have been a tougher call if there hadn't been another way to do the same thing that was already sort of public. Um, but that I got more about. I mean, there was, there was a very famous, it runs, you know, in the, in the sports writing underground. 
everybody knows that uh, there was a questionnaire that went out. I think it was sometime in the early 70s on the occasion of some Yankee celebration where the PR department sent around um, this questionnaire to old Yankees asking what they remembered most and their most, uh, you know, uh, favorite experience in the ballpark or whatever it was. And Mantle wrote, filled out his, uh, and again, I'm going to, I'm actually going to for once censor myself. Um, mm. he, he talked about getting a blowjob in, in the bullpen. And, um, and, and, you know, I really doubt, th- not that I doubt that, that that has happened in Major League Baseball, yeah. but I'm not sure what Mickey Mantle would have been doing in the bullpen. Um, but anyway, um, the, the point that made it okay to write was because it was so exaggerated and it didn't involve other people. And because at the very bottom of the questionnaire that he filled out, he signed it, Mickey Mantle, the all American boy, you know, which nobody had ever written about. I couldn't believe that when I found that I thought, wow, didn't anybody ever notice the irony? Cause that, that is exactly the same thing as the story I chose not to tell. Only it's showing that he had a sense of the irony, um, that he was anything but the all American boy and, right. and he knew it. Um, uh, and there were, there was another way in the book that I w- I could address the same subject. Um, so, um, so I left it out. I mean, I mean, I, fa- I faced the same kind of situation with Sandy Koufax because there had been so many rumors, um, at least, and again, in sports writing circles about whether he was gay. And I, I adamantly refused to address it in the book. I just wouldn't give it, you know, the time of day because I knew it wasn't true. And um, I didn't want the result of something I wrote to be influenced the way an obituary would be write, written about him, which I hope doesn't happen for a long time. Um, you know, which is a Sandy Koufax, comma, who isn't gay, comma, you right. know. <laughs> Right. You know, that, that sometimes what you write, even if you, what you're writing is, no, that's not true. Um, it, it becomes, gets a life of its own. And I didn't want to do that. Um, and, and, uh, so I simply, instead of addressing it straight on, I simply, um, I talked about his wives. <laughs> and, and I think that it was an expression of all the many ways in which Koufax as, as a somewhat enigmatic and Jewish and left-handed power pitcher, you know, was very much perceived as the other. And this was another expression of the way in which people were treating him as the other. It's damning that if you, if you don't run around with baseball annies who gather by the locker room door at the end of games, Oh, then you must be gay, right? Right. <laughs> As opposed right. to decent, discreet, and um, someone with a with a conscience. If you're good at getting people to say things and tell stories about themselves, which are not necessarily in their own interest, um, it, it, you know, then the struggle to decide what to do with what they tell you becomes even worse. 
I want to thank today's guest, Jane Levy, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Jane on Twitter at Jane Levy and the number one, and visit her at janelevy.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at www.503-sports.com. My still newish, newish book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazy Demise of the USFL, is available everywhere. One can listen to True Writers Singing on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the ridiculously gifted MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.